0: this thing on? Can you hear me? hope so. All right. Well, hello everybody, and I am very excited to be here and very excited for this opportunity to, again, be with you guys tonight and, and share the Word of God. Um, I'm going to open this real quick. I cannot talk, do two things at the same time, so let me open this up. So yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to be with you guys. Um, I really wish that I would have known beforehand that uh, Christmas was celebrated, For 12 days up until January 6th. Um, I think that's awesome. I think something we should go back to. um, Because I don't I don't know about you guys on on this, the the Sunday after Christmas. um, It's just that it can be kind of a depressing and tough time right after Christmas, especially um, if you're super pumped about the Christmas season with all the lights, all the events, um, and, and of course all the Christmas movies. I love Christmas movies, um, it just, but it all just goes by so fast, doesn't it? Um, it's here, and then it's just pff, gone, and um, so it's kind of a, a tough time right after Christmas, and, um, and I, I don't know if, if you're anything like me, but you're just kind of left run- wondering uh, what happened, and, and how is it possible for time to, to move by so quickly? And, and for Katie and I, all month long, we've we've been listening to a certain radio station. I don't even know what it is. Um, from like Thanksgiving night up until Christmas Day, that plays nothing but Christmas music. And Christmas night, Christmas day, of course, Christmas music. But we're going home, and as soon as it hits midnight, Christmas music stops. Just like that. Um, at first, we didn't even realize it. You know, then another normal song starts playing. And then halfway through the song, you're like, oh my gosh, what, what has just happened? Like, Christmas is over. And, and it's like the Christmas spirit starts to leave, or the ghost of Christmas past, whatever you want to call it. And, um, and reality kind of starts to set back in. And again, I, I don't know if, if you guys are like me, but I start to get kind of introspective in that time. I start thinking about all the Christmases before this, starting thinking about when I was a kid. Um... And then I start thinking about this last year. I start thinking about January to December. And I start to wonder, what, you know, what did I do with, that, with this year? Did I make an impact? Um, did my life touch anyone at all? What, what have I done? Or have I just wasted the time? And I think that's one of the reasons as well we, we make these New Year's resolutions I think for so many of us, um, Christians or not, we look at last year and, and feel maybe it's as if it was left wanting. We come away with more regret than good. And so we view the new year as a new start. A time to right what we've done wrong or just do things better. I think every single one of us is trying to prove that, that we have value. Now that we've been given value by our creator, which of course is the truth, but that every year and every day we're still trying to be good enough for whatever is next. And whether you believe in eternity or not, or you're just still trying to search and find answers, it's just so natural and easy for us to believe that at the end of this life, we have to prove that we're worth valuing, that we're worth remembering, maybe even worth saving. But that's what makes the coming of Christ so astounding. And not even just that he came, but how he came. And how the way in which he came changes everything for us. So the simplest way I can explain our text tonight is to say that the life of Jesus mattered. The entire life of Jesus mattered. And it's so inexhaustibly crucial to our salvation. And here Luke is giving us a short yet powerful glimpse into the necessary development and growth of our Lord. Its brevity shouldn't, shouldn't steer us to believe that it's not important, though. Rather, the, b- the brief account, I believe, highlights something even more significant. That we needed Jesus to come as a man just as much as we needed him to come as God. Not, however, as an immediate conqueror, but as a baby, who would grow as we grow, learn as we learn, and experience pain and trials as we experience pain and trials. All so that we can know and proclaim alongside the author of Hebrews. I do have this text as well. There we go. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. So let's look to our text to see our Savior came as an infant to live for us. Beginning in verse 41, we see our one and only glimpse of Jesus' life in between his birth and his adult ministry. At the age of 12 years old, going up to the temple um, in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover with his parents. It was a law that every year the men of Israel would make the trip to Jerusalem to celebrate the redemption that they received out of Egypt. But of course, by this time, it was normal for all of the family to partake, and so that's what we see. This year was especially significant because Jesus was on the cusp of becoming a man who would be fully obligated to observe the law. At the age of 13, boys would become sons of the commandment, and they would fully join the religious community and take... Um, take on their prescribed responsibilities. It is significant then that at this stage in his life, so close to manhood, that Jesus would take this opportunity to say that he is more than a son of the commandment. Now Luke doesn't mention how in the following verses Mary and Joseph managed to leave Jesus in Jerusalem after the uh, week-long Passover feast. And nor does he make it clear if it was Jesus' intention to be left behind. But as one commentator noted in regard to this story, Jesus emphatically uses this situation to reveal to his parents and to reveal to us that his life meant a whole lot more than just following the footsteps of his pious and devout parents. But I want to I pause for a moment to really let this situation sink in. The idea of Jesus being left behind in Jerusalem. Because I think it's really easy to, to pass over, I think this text as a whole is easy to pass over, it being our only glimpse of Jesus' silent years, that life in between his birth and uh, his adult ministry. And, and I don't know about you guys, but I think it's hard to even imagine this is a big deal, because it's, it's Jesus we're talking about. He's, he's 12, but he's the Son of God. Um, so why, why on earth would, would this be a big deal at all? He can take care of himself. Um, it's, uh, it's the Son of God for crying out loud. But just imagine being in the shoes of Mary and Joseph leaving Jerusalem and walking 20 to 25 miles it probably would have. and in a day's journey, it probably would have gone 20 to 25 miles with their caravan of family and neighbors, and, and that only to realize that they'd left their son behind. <clears throat> and it reminds, it reminds me of a story of when I was uh, two years old. In Disneyland, is any good Californian, um, yes, and I'm sorry, I'm from California, um, any good Californian going to Disneyland, making our trip uh, down to Southern California. And um, so I was with my parents and my older sister, and, um, and like Jesus, I had a divine calling and obligation, um, a, a task and a mission that I, I just knew I needed to accomplish, and, um, and apparently my sister was involved in this calling as well. The Lord had also spoken to her. Um, because she was the one who, when my parents were watching, released me from the bondage of my stroller and, uh, and sent me on my way at, at two years old. <clears throat> and, um, and yeah, I, I, as I said, I was under divine obligation to sit at the feet of Goofy and learn his ways. And, and naturally, like Mary and Joseph, um, when my parents did realize that I was missing from their caravan, they flipped out. Um, you know, they, of course, didn't have to travel a day's journey to find me, but I, I'm sure it felt like, especially if you're a parent and you've ever lost your child for even two seconds, um, probably felt like they traveled around that park 20 to 25 miles to find me. And, and of course, thankfully, with help of Disneyland security, they did. Uh, they, at least I assume so. I, I believe that they're my real parents. Um, but they did, with the help of Disneyland Security, find me. Um, and, of, of course, you know, I'm sure it looked quite odd. A, a two-year-old boy running around by himself. with a Disneyland map, actually, in my hands. Um, so that's kind of impressive. Um, you know, screwing around. In obvious hot pursuit of my calling and my mission. And, um, and then, of course, I had my, you know, my Pooh Bear hat on with my name embroidered onto the top of it, and, and that was for identification purposes, of course. But, but can you imagine the fear and pain my parents must have gone through in that time when I was lost? And, and with the idea of possibly never finding their son again. So I think when we look at this text, we, we have to remember, when we look at every biblical text, we have to remember that these are real people in a real history going through real and sometimes extremely painful situations and circumstances. And when Mary and Joseph did find their son sitting in the temple learning from the teachers, they were in pain and distress. Now again, Luke doesn't tell us exactly how Jesus got left behind. He doesn't point blame because that's, that's not the issue at hand. Luke is describing a very real and probably very intense scene that needed to take place in order to stress Beyond words to Mary and Joseph, and also to us reading this now, just who this Jesus is. Upon finding him, Mary says to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And, and that can also be translated as in great pain. But Jesus replies in more words significant than, than we have time to unpack. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? You see the contrast that's taking place here. Mary is asking her son, "Why was obedience to your parents not the first and final thought in your mind?" And, and Jesus, in and, in and, and possible confusion or just surprise, is wondering, "Why would you not, as my earthly parents, recognize, comprehend that I must be obedient first and foremost uh, to my heavenly Father?" This begins um, as what I see is one of the main texts, our main um, ideas of the text, the main um, significant aspects of the text. That the life of Jesus matters because through it we see the beginning of a new and improbable family that belongs to God. In these passages and through this difficult experience, Jesus is making it clear that his life must be about the Father's purposes. When Jesus says that he must be in his Father's house, in the Greek, it can also be translated as about his Father's business about his affairs, and and even about his people, even at the cost of of what that would mean to his parents, to his disciples, and and of course to himself as he dies for us uh, upon the cross. But in these passages, he's claiming what his parents already know, that, that he is the son of God. He is more than a son of the commandment. He is the son who will finally fulfill the righteous standard and commandment on our behalf. But like we see even from his disciples during his adult ministry, there's there's some confusion as to what this would mean, the cost um, that would take place, and that being uh, the the cost that would be required to bring salvation to his people. So before the foundations of the earth were created, Jesus was and is the Son of God. But for a brief period in history, Jesus comes to us in our form and in our weaknesses to also be the son of a couple in the the first century A.D. and all all In order to to make all of us who believe and trust in his life and his death and his resurrection sons and daughters of our eternal God. Without the life of Jesus, we we cannot enter into the family of God. And for all those in the Old Testament who waited for their Savior and for us who can look back and see his life, his death and his resurrection and, and all that he's accomplished for us, um, there, there would be no eternal relationship with the Father if it w- weren't for the earthly life of the Son, those years between his birth and his, his adult ministry and his death. Um, but as we've been doing throughout this Advent series, um, continue to reflect on the words and wisdom of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He writes concerning the life of Jesus. When God's Son took on flesh... He truly and bodily took on, out of pure grace, our being, our nature, ourselves. This was the eternal counsel of the triune God. Now we are in him, where he is, there we are too, in the incarnation, on the cross, and in his resurrection. We belong to him because we are in him. That is why the scriptures call us the body of Christ. To become this body and this, this family of God, this family of Christ, Jesus first had to, and as Hebrews 8 tells us, al- although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus had to come to this earth uh, as fully man, and, and a mystery that Brian talked about a few weeks ago. And, and an aspect of this mystery that can be really hard to comprehend, um, hard for us to understand, is that in his incarnation, Jesus emptied himself. He took on our nature, he took on our flesh, he took on our emotions, he took on our weaknesses. I would love to be able to spend an hour just thinking about, talking about what that looks like when Paul writes in Philippians, that he emptied himself, that he did not see equality with God, a thing to be grasped. How he learned, how, how this text said, he, he sat before the teachers and he learned, how the writer of Hebrews tell us he tell, uh, tells us that, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He didn't give up an ounce of his divinity, but he took us upon himself. So we can imagine the pain he too must have felt in revealing to his earthly parents that he must, obe- he must be obedient to his heavenly Father above anything else, no matter what the cost. Although he knew exactly what his life was about, we can know and trust that he also knew how difficult his his command in Luke fourteen twenty six was when he told his disciples, if anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Why? Because he knew what it, what it meant to be obedient to God in every circumstance, no matter how painful. And he did so in order that we too may love God, may desire him, no matter the pain or difficulty. He took on us in order that we may take on him. This leads to the second significant purpose or implication of the text, and that's that Jesus' life matters because it's the beginning of our new life. To finish the last verse I mentioned in Hebrews 5, um, the writer continues by saying, and being made perfect, he became the source of our eternal salvation to all who obey him. And after Mary and Joseph find Jesus in the temple, and after they wonder at the significance of of what had just taken place, Luke tells us that in continued obedience, he goes back to Nazareth with his family. He submits to them, and he continues to increase in wisdom, and in stature, and in favor with God and man. Why is this important? How could Luke use just a few verses to tell us, um, to sum up his life between, again, from birth to 12 to 12 to, to 30. Because being made perfect and being the source of our eternal salvation meant that in obedience to the Father, he had to live a normal life as a man, a life like ours. There's a lot of stories, um, the Gnostic Gospels and elsewhere, talk about this superhuman Jesus killing people because they bumped into him, all sorts of craziness. Um, we can I, I can't imagine. I think when we think about the life of Jesus and living obedience, suffering, and earning our salvation, the life that we couldn't live, and, and thinking about some Superman Jesus that those texts um, reveal, it's it's hard. It's hard to understand the depth or the impl- implication of how that life can suffice for ours. So Luke tells us, as Hebrews tells us, he, he learned, he suffered for us. He lived a normal life for us. Of course, he was the son of God, but again, he emptied himself. He took on our form, our weakness, in order that he would be our perfect sacrifice. And of course, the difference is he, he did face every trial, every pain, and every new year, and every new circumstance perfectly. But again, he... He took on us. And and he did this because in order for us to be perfect before perfect God, Jesus had to be perfect for us. He took on us in order that we may take on him. And a few weeks ago, we saw um, in in Brian's sermon how Moses, when when asking to see the glory of God, um, God puts him in the cleft of the mountain, puts his hand over him, and as he passes by, um, you know, covers him so that way he can only see his backside. Because for all of us, including Moses, if if left in our current condition, we could not see God and live. We cannot stand before a perfect God without ourselves being perfect and holy as He is. And Jesus' life matters. His his entire life matters because we couldn't do it ourselves. But I think often we try. And I think often we look at our perfect God and, and think that in, or, in order to gain his love, we have to meet his standard. But then when we mess up, and when we fall short of that standard, we, we were, we're left paralyzed. And either we, we stay in despair and in shame and in guilt, um, or, or we spend the rest of our lives trying to make up, make up for it and hoping at the end of it all, we'll have, enough, we'll have done enough to earn forgiveness that will have done enough to prove that we have value. And I think for those of us even that understand grace and that understand that we've been saved apart from works, it's, it's difficult, it's, it's easy to still live in that place because the, theoretically we, we trust in Christ, but then we still live in a, in a state of fear um, that we're not good enough, that no matter what we do, it's not going to be good enough. This is the beauty of the entire gospel. And it's the, it's the beauty of the entire life of Christ. When he died for us upon the cross, he not only took our sins and our guilt and our shame and, and wiped that away, because that was necessary, but it was also necessary that he give us his life, that we take on every ounce of his righteousness, his holiness, that he won for us, in complete obedience to the Father. Again, not as some superman Jesus, but as an infant, as a baby, living for 30 years in in a normal and very silent life, actually, in regards to the biblical text. He took on us in order that we may take on him. That's something that we can never do on our own, That life, that necessary righteousness and obedience that needed to take place is is something we can never do on our own. And the fact that Jesus did it for us changes everything. Our lives are no longer dictated by fear and guilt and shame. But we could look to Jesus who lived, not theoretically, but in history, in time and in space. As we live now, he lived and he lived for us. And I think every single one of us, whether we're, we're Christians already or are still just trying to understand what this means and what this looks like, have experienced pain, have, ex- have experiences in general and guilt and circumstances um, that whether we realize it or not dictate and determine um, the choices we make and the reasons we make them. And they cause us to look back, as I said earlier, look back at our, our year and look back at the years before that. And, and find them left wanting. And, and no matter how hard we try, we're left feeling as though, and, and, and in honesty, that we'll, we'll never be able to clean up the mess that we left behind. Whether it was our mess, someone else's left, the way that impacted our lives. And we would never be able to make up for that. And, and the weight of our years, this year, the prior years, we'll be left empty. We'll fall short. But what we need to see and believe, is not just an idea, but as as a reality that was lived out for us when Jesus grew and and learned and, and suffered and was obedient to the Father, is that someone else lived for us because no matter how many new resolutions we make, we cannot make ourselves good enough our value isn't determined by what we can bring to God, and it never was. We were made valuable, and Jesus came to restore it. He brought us new life that we can never earn. He gave us himself. He gave us his status so that we too may be sons and daughters of God. And he also gave us one another. Again, he... He gave us this new and improbable family that belongs to God. And then the church is a beautiful thing. We're called the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, and it does not get more intimate than that. With our God and with each other, we we weren't left alone. And no matter what this last year brought, or any other year before that, we go forward knowing that because of his, his entire life, the entire life of Christ, and his death and his resurrection. Our lives, our hope, our future, and our standing before God is dictated and directed by Jesus. And we have each other, again, an improbable family that belongs to God. We have each other to remind one another of this reality lived out for us in history so ever, with every new year and every new day, we as a church can point each other to Christ. Again, not theoretically, not to an idea of salvation, but, but as, as Simeon said, as we learned last week, as he held baby Jesus in his hands and said, this is salvation. Not just an idea, this is salvation in a baby, in a child, and of course in a man on the cross. And we look to him together, not alone, but together as the family of God. To know that our lives are are no longer dictated by what we do, the value that we think we can bring. and Our our new year and our future, our hope um, is dictated by Christ. So let's pray together. Father God, um, we are so thankful for, for sending your son. We are so thankful for the life of Christ. in um, deeper ways than, than we have time to even comprehend or unpack, to think through. And, uh, and I've just been so thankful even over these past few weeks to, to take the time to look through this text that I feel like is so often um, skimmed to realize that that every aspect of Jesus' life mattered for us. That he won our righteousness, our holiness, that we cannot earn or deserve on our own. But that he came and he took us upon himself so that we may take on him. And Father, we thank you for, for this salvation. We thank you for our family, we thank you for one another, um, that you've saved us not to be alone as individuals, but as, as the family and body of Christ, who would push each other towards you, who would direct one another in, in continued pain and difficulty that we, that we will experience for the rest of our lives, that we have one another to, to redirect, to point each other towards Christ, this reality um, that's been earned for us. So we thank you for this time, and um, I just pray that we would go um, in peace and throughout uh, the end of this year, into the new year, uh, knowing that, that we have a salvation that was not by our works or our value, um, but completely purchased um, at the cost <clears throat> of Jesus' life, death and resurrection. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.